Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, how can you witness to someone who is apathetic about Christianity? Which Bible translation is best? If gender dysphoria is caused by the fall, wouldn't surgery be an acceptable way of correcting the problem? After all, we do it for other conditions, you know, like a cleft palate, bad eyesight, heart defects. And is Christianity a white man's religion? These are four questions I hope to get to today. These are questions you have emailed in to hello at crossexamine.org. I hope we'll get to all four of these. If not, we'll get to three of them. Uh, but before I do, I just want to mention one thing that occurred on November 21st, 1864. President Abraham Lincoln wrote to Miss Lydia Bixby of Boston, and he was writing to her because she or he had just been informed that Miss Bixby had lost five sons in the Civil War. Five sons in the Civil War. And this is really what Memorial Day, which we just celebrated, is all about. Here's what President, imagine the President of the United States. The President of the United States, he's in the middle of a war, a civil war, and he writes a letter to a lady who didn't write him. He just learned that she had lost five sons. And here is what he wrote. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage you the anguish of your bereavement and to leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. That was President Abraham Lincoln on November 21st, 1864, to Miss Lydia Bixby who had lost five sons in the Civil War. I, you can't say that any better than Lincoln did. I mean, I have trouble consoling people who have lost loved ones. And here Lincoln, in just a few sentences, turns what seems to be an impossible task to comfort someone who lost five sons into a positive when he says the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. 
there are a lot of people that gave their lives so we could have the freedoms that we have here in this country. Sadly, some of those freedoms are going away because we don't realize what Benjamin Franklin knew when a woman after the Constitutional Convention asked him, what kind of government have you given us, Mr. Franklin? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. Freedom is never free. There are always forces of evil that want to take away freedom. And so we have to be vigilant to maintain our freedoms. And I know Christians have argued over whether violence is ever is ever um, appropriate in a situation. I don't have time to get all the de- in, to get all the details here today or to unpack those here. But the short answer is yes. In fact, killing this commandment does not say thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. And in a just war, in self-defense, uh, the government can also kill in a capital crime if the person commits a capital crime. So there are reasons to use appropriate levels of force to defend the innocent. And my co-author, Dr. Norman Geisler, has a, a book on ethics that you ought to get, not just for the chapter on war, but so many other ethical issues are unpacked in that book. So if you want to go deeper than just the surface treatment I'm giving here, get the book Christian Ethics by Norman Geisler, because he goes through that particular ethical topic and so many others. It's a very helpful resource. Yes, there are periods or there are times when war is necessary to bring back peace, to prevent evil people from overrunning the innocent. And of course, in in our recent century, the last century, it certainly was appropriate. In fact, I would argue it was morally necessary to resist Hitler, to defeat Hitler. Because you can't love your neighbors if you're allowing some evil tyrant to overrun them. You're not loving them by allowing that. In any event, I just thought it was quite eloquent of President Lincoln to say what he said back in 1864. All right, let me go to some of your questions now. Um, Robert writes in, the notion of apathy that a lot of people have regarding morality and religion reminds me of the functional view of religion. When someone only behaves or believes in a particular religion, when it is beneficial to their circumstances. That's, we've mentioned that a few podcasts ago. That's the functional view of religion, ladies and gentlemen. That's when you just decide you're going to believe something because it, quote unquote, works for you. Not whether or not it's true, but somehow it just works for you. And so Robert asks, are we living in a culture where the most popular belief is apathyism? You know, you, we know about atheism, but what about apathyism? Many atheists are, well, they're arguing against God. They're spending a lot of their time arguing against God, that they don't want there to be a God, that they think there is no God, that they're rebelling against, whatever. But apathy is they really don't care. They really don't care if there's a God or not. In fact, I'm reminded one time at our seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary, by the way, a great place to get an education, ses.edu, ses.edu. If you go to ses.edu forward slash Frank, you can actually get a scholarship. Anyway. I remember one student asked Dr. Geisler, what is the greatest problem in America today? Is it ignorance or apathy? 
And one student said, I don't know and I don't care, right? There's a lot of people, that they don't know, they don't care. So this is why, by the way, the question of apathyism uh, can be uncovered quite easily by simply asking the, the question we always ask people, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If the person hesitates or says no, it's not a head problem. It's not a problem of the intellect. It's the person's not looking for evidence. The person either doesn't care or is running from God. In fact, a, a thought experiment I do quite a bit with, with uh, audiences is I ask them, and let's just do it with you right now. You're, you're listening. I want you to think of somebody that you know who's not a Christian, whom you'd like to be a Christian. Friend, relative, somebody like that. You got someone? Okay, here's the question. Is the person you're thinking of on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know if Christianity is true. Or are they apathetic or maybe even hostile to Christianity? All right, think about it. Is the person on a relentless pursuit of truth? When I ask that question in front of audiences, I usually get zero hands. Maybe one or two, but usually zero. Okay, is the person you're thinking of apathetic or hostile? Well, most of the time when I ask that question, just about everyone's hand goes up. They're apathetic or hostile. Most people are looking for God like a criminal's looking for a cop. They're on the run. They're running. They don't want God. And so you should always ask, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Or if you want to take Christianity out of it because it has this negative connotation in people's minds, is if Jesus really rose from the dead to prove he was God, would you follow him? A lot of times the answer is no. Now, you, you, you shouldn't get mad at people who are apathetic or even hostile. Why? Well, let me ask you a question. Were you ever apathetic or hostile to Christianity? You might be a Christian right now. Why do you expect everyone to be where you are right now? Why do you expect everybody to agree with you, your present self, right now, when maybe 10 years ago you didn't agree with your present self? I mean, everyone is at a different point of spiritual development. Why, would, why should you think everyone should be at the same level of interest that you are right now? This is why, you know, a lot of people say, well, Frank, you know, when you're uh, answering questions on a college campus, you don't really get upset with these people, with these young people. And some of them are quite, you know, they're quite snotty. They, you know, they, they're, they're, they're a little bit hostile. And I, I always say, why should I get upset with them? Why should I expect some 21-year-old person to agree with me at 61. When I was 21, I didn't agree with my current 61-year-old self. So why should I expect some, some kid who's 21 or 18 or 7 or whatever, why should I expect them to agree with me right now? I shouldn't. I don't know that person's background. I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know how they were brought up. I don't know what life experiences they've had. Maybe they know something I don't know. That's possible too, right? I mean, I don't know. So we should have a, an attitude of, of grace to such people. In fact, Paul himself said, look, I was an insolent and arrogant man, but God showed me mercy. God, God gave me grace, what I didn't deserve. And so I think we have to keep that attitude with people. We have to, we have to realize that not everyone is going to agree with us all the time. And we didn't agree, even agree with us at one point. So when you run into somebody who's hostile or apathetic, you know, you ask them the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I, I don't know. I, or no, you know, they give, they give you one of those. 
I've been saying there's at least four things you can do. There's probably more. These are four things I just thought of. Number one, you can pray. Number two, you can plant seeds every now and then. Plant seeds that get them thinking, that, that show them that secularism isn't the right worldview or whatever worldview they have, you know. Oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, you know, that kind of thing. What does that, what does that even mean, by the way? I found normally it means I want to have the advantages of being spiritual without any moral accountability. In any event, pray, plant seeds, plant seeds. Maybe they're questions, maybe they're points, maybe they're uh, articles that you come across, blogs you come across, little videos you come across, you send to them. You know, every once in a while, not all the time. Because if somebody is, is running from God, you're just going to annoy them more if you pester them too much. They're already suppressing the truth about God that they can see from creation. If you, you know, that, that, that light of creation, if you shine a brighter light in their face, they're, they might even get more hostile. But every once in a while, plant some seeds. That's the second thing. Third thing you can do is love them. That doesn't mean you approve of everything they do. We all know that love doesn't require approval. At least we know. I mean, the culture doesn't seem to know it. Love does not require approval. Every parent knows this. If you approve of everything your kid wants to do, you're not loving. You're unloving. You've got to stand in the way of evil. In fact, I was at uh, the pastor's uh, summit that TPUSA Faith puts on. My friend Charlie Kirk, great pastor summit last week in, in um, it was in Nashville, Tennessee, and they're doing some great work there at TPUSA Faith to help pastors and help Christians navigate this hostile culture. Anyway, I was, uh, I was there, and uh, the great Bill Federer was presenting. I did a I moderated a panel of pastors, but Bill got up and gave a presentation, and here's what he said. And uh, we've had Bill on the show before. He's an amazing historian. I'm looking for the exact reference here. Let me see if I can uh, find it. Do you, uh, you know, of course, the, the, famous, uh, the famous command that Jesus gave us, uh, which is, uh, hang on, hang on. Why don't I have this in front of me right now? Um, oh, here it is. Well, we all know the famous command, love your neighbor as yourself. Everyone, even non-Christians know that. Well, where did Jesus get that from? Did he just, is that just new revelation from Jesus? Well, no, most of you know it did come from the Old Testament. But you don't really know uh, the context of where it came from in the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus, Levititus. The book of Leviticus, this is where you get hung up every time you try and read through the Bible, you know, chronologically. Man, I got through Genesis. Most of Exodus was fun too, but then the book of Levititus. The book of Leviticus, it really bogs you down. Anyway, uh, this actually says... As many of you know, here's what verse 18 says of Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, don't bear a grudge. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus is quoting that. But you know what comes right before that? Here's verse 17. Listen carefully. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you will not share in their guilt? What? In other words, 
Part of loving your neighbor is rebuking your neighbor. If your neighbor is in the wrong, you need to rebuke your neighbor so you will not share in their guilt. In other words, you have an obligation to call. If, to, if you're loving your neighbor, you have an obligation to correct them when they're doing something morally wrong. In our culture, we say, oh, no, if you're doing something morally wrong, in order for me to support you, I have to not only tolerate it, I will celebrate it with you. I may even participate in it with you. That's straight. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. If you love somebody, you're going to stand in the way of the evil they want to do. And this is what, this is the context of love your neighbor. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. If you know your neighbor, your loved one is doing something evil and you don't rebuke them, this passage is implying that you're guilty. You're sharing in their guilt. All right, but I digress. Let's go back to our topic here. Our topic was we're dealing with somebody apathetic. And the third thing I said you can do is love them. And I'm just trying to explain what love is. It doesn't mean approval. You need to rebuke people who are doing evil to love them. And the fourth thing you can do is to wait. Why wait? Because as I mentioned earlier, everybody is on this on, on their own calendar of spiritual development. They're not always going to be right where you are right now. Most people won't be. In fact, hopefully you, five years from now, if you're still alive, will be further down that road toward Jesus. You might be further away, too. Who knows? So, you ask, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? They don't care. Uh, uh. Or they're hostile. Pray, plant seeds, love them, and then wait. Why wait? Because if that person's ever going to be open, it's when tragedy strikes. And tragedy strikes all of us at some point. And there are two directions you can take when tragedy strikes. You normally don't stay in one place. You either get better or you get bitter. You either move toward God or you move away from God. If that person is ever going to be interested in moving toward God, it's going to be when tragedy strikes. And then your phone is going to ring and that person's going to be on the other end. It's not going to be... It's not going to be, they're not going to call their atheist friend when something goes wrong. What's the atheist friend going to say? Well, there's no rhyme or reason to any of this. Stuff just happens. Get over it. There's no, there's no purpose to life. No, they're going to call you a person of spiritual depth. All right, that's the first question. What do you do with ap apathy? If I had the cure for apathy, uh, two things would happen. Everyone would be a Christian because I could get everyone to care, and I'd be a billionaire because I could get people to do what I want, but I can't, okay? But <laughs> those are just some suggestions with regard to apathy. And isn't it interesting? We have the most apathy in this country because we're the most materialistic and consumer-oriented. We have everything to live with and nothing to live for. We have no purpose. Our, our suicide rates are going through the roof, even though we're comfortable on our way there. So comfort is not the secret to life. Comfort is not where you're going to find uh, meaning. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis has this, I'm paraphrasing, he has something where he says, if you seek comfort, you're not going to make it. But if you seek truth, then you're going to find true meaning. Comfort is not, you may get comfort in the end if you seek truth. But if you seek comfort for comfort's sake, it's not going to end well. 
All right, let's go to the next question. Kyle writes, first and foremost, I want to thank and everything you do in your ministry. I hit a low point in my life several years ago after my, my, he says, after my divorce initiated by my unbelieving wife, I fell into a deep depression for a couple of years. I never turned from my faith, but I did not stop believing in myself. Was Christianity actually true or was that just another one of my own failures? By God's providence, I found many of your videos on YouTube. Thank you for introducing me to the world of apologetics. Now I actually feel a bit ashamed that I didn't question more at the beginning of my faith journey. Apologetics is such an important tool to combat the deception that runs rampant in the world. We need to be teaching this stuff to our children. Honestly, the whole church needs it. All right, I'm interrupting right here. Thank you, Kyle, for that. I agree with you a thousand percent. And it goes back to what we just said a minute ago about apathy. Um, And that is when... When you're apathetic or you're hostile, sometimes an event has to occur in your life that wakes you up. My dad used to put it this way. Some things only become important when they become personal. If you think about that, that's true. Look, you you probably don't care at all about a certain kind of cancer until you get it or a loved one gets it. Then suddenly you become an oncologist yourself. You notice that? I mean, I have friends who have their spouses have cancer and they're, they're like oncologists. My sister is an oncologist practically because her husband had cancer twice. And she suddenly is an expert in everything because it became personal. She got interested in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma because my brother-in-law Jim had it twice, 20 years ago and just last year. Thank God he's gotten through it. He's in remission again. But she wouldn't care about it until it became personal. And isn't it the same with all of us? We, we don't care about reasons until we need them. We don't care about evidence until suddenly our world is rocked. It's like, when should you get friends? Before you need them. When should you get evidence? Before you need it. When should you get answers to why God allows evil? Before tragedy hits you. Not when it hits you, before it hits you, so you can weather the storm. When should you build your house on a rock? Before the storm comes. Not while it's coming, not in the midst of it. When should you decide whether or not to accept Christ's gift? Now, you might not have tomorrow. So, I'm glad that going through difficulty, I'm not glad you went through difficulty, Kyle, but I'm glad that going through difficulty brought you out into the light that I need answers. I need to know if this stuff's really true. We need to teach this stuff early to kids. Use their basic intuition that there is a God because it's just part of natural revelation. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. You don't need Romans 1 to know this, but Paul is basically saying that the created world, that God's invisible qualities and divine attributes are clearly seen from what has been made so that men are without excuse. I mean, he's informing us what we already intuitively know, that if there's a creation, there must be a creator. If there's design, there must be a designer. If there's a moral law written on our hearts, there must be a moral law giver. We're always reasoning from effect back to cause. That's how we know God exists. We know God by his effects. If there's a creation, that's the effect, there must be a cause, a creator. If there's design, that's the effect, there must be a cause, a designer. If there's a moral law written on our hearts, that's the effect, there must be a cause, a moral law giver. So we're always reasoning from effect back to cause. So young kids know this. Doug Axe, who wrote the book Undeniable, 
works for the Discovery Institute, says that kids intuitively know that every effect has a cause, and they know the world around them is an effect, so they always reason back to a cause. Even kids brought up in atheistic homes, when they see something in the natural world, like suppose they see a butterfly or a hummingbird or something, they go, somebody must have caused that, right? They, they immediately go, there's got to be a creator. Their atheist parents need to talk them out of it because the intuition is so strong. Even Richard Dawkins famously said, and I'm paraphrasing in one of his earlier books, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of design, of, of, of design for a purpose. Well, maybe it's not just an appearance, Dr. Dawkins. Maybe it's literally design, these things, these biological entities. Anyway, Kyle goes on to write this. Anyway, I was, I was hoping to, to talk to you a bit about the more popular Bible translations. I'm not going to read his, uh, his entire long question here, but he's basically saying, what insight can you offer on the veracity of popular versions of the Bible? Do you have a preferred version? And yes, I do have a preferred version. My version is all of them except the perversions called the Passion Translation and the New World Translation. Most translations are good overall. And when we teach our online course, the online course is called How to Interpret Your Bible, we we show kind of a... uh, uh, a picture of where the translations fit from paraphrase all the way to literal and the advantages and disadvantages of all these translations. And what we, the recommendation we give in the course, how to interpret your Bible, the recommendation is, is that you use all the translations when you're studying. And this is the beauty of of having the Bible online, whether you're using Blue Letter Bible online or you're using Lagos, which is the greatest Bible software anywhere. You can compare all these translations, and you ought to, because uh, there's, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to all the translations. And he was, uh, Kyle here in this question was asking, a lot of people really think the King James was like let down from heaven. What do you think about the King James? And I think the King, King James is, is, is a very elegant translation. The problem is there's so many words in 1611 uh, English that have different meanings today or different usages today. And so, and, and you know, we don't speak in these and thous, and it's really hard to follow sometimes. So it might be better to have a more modern translation. In fact, let me, let me show you one of the problems you might run into if, say, you just rely on the King James alone. If you go to 2 Thessalonians 2.7, first of all, here's what the NIV says, the nearly inspired version, little joke we have, okay? It's a good translation. There are advantages and disadvantages. Here's the NIV. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Seems to be a, a reference to maybe the Antichrist. But the one who now holds it back, maybe the Antichrist, that's what she's referring to, will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. Now, here's the King James Version. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. He, only he who now letteth, will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, notice the word letteth here. What did the word letteth, how was it used in 1611? The word letteth was used in a way 
to communicate resistance, not allowance. In our culture today, the word let or letteth means to allow. In 1611, it was used to mean to resist. So why am I bringing this up? Because when you read the NIV, you get the idea that someone is holding the Antichrist, if this is a reference to the Antichrist, that's dis- disputed. Anyway, or this, this power of lawlessness. Someone is holding this power of lawlessness back, okay? But in the King James Version, when you read it, it says, only he who now allows this spirit of lawlessness, this mystery of iniquity. So you're getting the opposite meaning when you read the King James than when you read the NIV or the NASB. In fact, the NASB says, which is a more literal translation, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. You see, the right translation for today's culture is restrain or hold back, as the NIV says. It's not letteth, as the King James says. So you have to be very careful when you're reading the King James because words change meaning. Technically, that's really not the case. Uh, this was We talked about this in seminary, that words don't really have meanings, they have usages. They have meanings inside the usage, but the usage determines the meaning. Like, for example, if I say the word bark, what am I talking about? You don't know. I could be talking about the bark of a tree or the bark of a dog, right? You got to know the, you have to know the context in which the, the word is being used or the word board. Am I talking about the board in a floor, the board in a company? Um, or if, if you don't know the spelling, am I talking about what you are right now, board? <laughs> you know, like you're not interested, You've got to know the spelling. You'll, you know it wouldn't be that kind of board. But in any event, words don't have, technically they don't have meanings alone. They have usages and they have meaning inside the usage. I know that's kind of a technical point. But the word let now means to allow. In 1611, it was used to mean restrain. Also, uh, in 1 Samuel 24, uh, let me set the context of this. This is the King James Version. Of uh, well, let me let me just tell you what's going on here. Remember, Saul's trying to find David to kill him. He's jealous of David, and David is in En Gedi, a place we normally go when we go to Israel. We're going in November again. It's sold out. So if you want to join us, you can't join us this year. We'll go again. In any event, uh, he is trying to find David, and David and his men are hiding in a cave. And Saul actually goes into the cave. And here is what the King James Version says, 1 Samuel 24, 3. It says, and Saul came to the sheepcoats, by the way, there was a cave. And Saul went into and Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained inside or remained in the sides of the cave. So Saul went in to cover his feet. What the heck does that mean? Well, that's what the King James says. The NIV says, Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. I didn't know what cover his feet meant because I didn't know that idiom uh, in, at that 
at that time. That's the literal translation. I guess in the Hebrew, it went in to cover his feet. A Hebrew idiom. What does cover your feet mean? It means basically to urinate. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm doing that, I want to do more than cover my feet. I want to clear my feet, okay? But I guess that was the idiom they had back then. You wouldn't know it reading the King James Version, but the translators know that we don't know what cover his feet means. We don't know the idiom, so they literalize it. He went in to relieve himself, or he went in a colloquialism. He, I mean, some translations may say he went in to urinate, okay? So... The literal translation always isn't always the best. Sometimes you, you, you won't know what's being talked about if you take everything literally. They use idioms. They use phrases. They use figures of speech that we might not be familiar with. Now, one thing I will say about the King James is it translates the Hebrew word correctly for servant as servant, not slave. When you read the King James Version, you read the Old Testament, you don't find the word slave. You might find it once or twice. You find the word servant. Why? Because that's what it meant, indentured servitude. The word slave, however, misleads modern modern ears, modern readers. When we see the word slave, we're thinking of slavery that occurred in this country back during the Civil War, prior to the Civil War. But in the Hebrew Bible, the word that's translated into slave in most translations should be translated servant because that's what these people were. They were indentured servants. They were not slaves in the kidnap against your will sense. All right. Hey, a couple of events coming up. Every Wednesday night in June, I think beginning June 7th. Let me check that here. Yeah, it is June 7th. Right here in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'll be at Central Church of God. I think it starts 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. We're going through the evidence for Christianity. We're going through I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist and some other topics. Every Wednesday night, 7 o'clock in Charlotte, North Carolina, Central Church of God, right there off Fairview, uh, not far from South Park. For those of you who are familiar with uh, Charlotte, you can go to our website, crossexamine.org. Everybody's welcome. You can see the details. Then, June 10th and 11th, I'll be at Cascade Hills Church in Columbus, Georgia. Saturday night service, Sunday night morning services, Sunday night where we're going to go through uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist and Take Your Questions. Everybody is welcome there. Finally, we got the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy coming up, CIA. That's going to happen out in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the end of July. We just have a few seats left. If you want to be a part of the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy to learn how to present apologetics and to answer questions, go to crossexamine.org, click on events, you'll see CIA there. Not everybody can come. You have to have certain requirements. It's not uh, cheap. It Well, it's, it's worth it, but it's not cheap. Uh, in fact, we have people that come back five, six, seven times to this thing because they get so much out of it. It's not just me who instructs. It'll be Greg Kokel and uh, Elisa Childers and Natasha Crane and a new instructor this year, Alan Parr of The Beat by uh, Alan Parr. you find him on YouTube. Uh, Brett Kunkel, Richard Howe, Bobby Conway, Jorge Gill, many others. Go to our website, crossexamine.org, click on events. All right, let me try and get to one more question uh, before we go, we'll have some other questions in, in future shows. In fact, uh, this comes from Elijah, who says, Dear Frank Turk, I've been listening to your podcast for several years. 
and very much appreciate the perspective you give on so many subjects. I am a young Bible-believing Christian and agree with your views that you express on God's design for marriage, sexuality, and gender. Let me stop right here. Yeah, they're my views, but they're they're the views from the Bible, okay? It doesn't matter really what I think. It matters what, what God thinks that we get both from the scriptures and also natural law. You don't even need the Bible to know that men were made for women and women were made for men, and there's a natural design to the body. All right, but I digress. But thank you for that, Elijah. He goes on to say, I am writing in because I have a friend that claims to be a Christian. He states that he believes in a fundamental difference between male and female and that men cannot be women or women uh, or that men cannot be women or the other way around. Yet he believes that as a result of the fall, a man could be born in a woman's body and thus it is permissible and to a certain extent even necessary for such a man to seek medical help to change his body to line up with his true identity. I disagree with this line of reasoning. He makes his case based on the fact that we all would agree that being intersexed is a result of the curse or the fall, let's say. I am struggling to know how to respond. Thankfully, he's open to discussion, but I cannot seem to figure out a way to explain that our sex is who we are and not distinct from our true identity. God bless you as you carry on your work. Uh, bringing truth to my generation. Thank you, Elijah. Thank you, Elijah. Yes. Um, well, first of all, the intersex thing is is a, is a complete red herring. What's a red herring? That's when you drag a fish across a, a path to get the dogs off the scent, okay? To divert people to an issue that really is irrelevant to the topic you're talking about. The very, very rare case of intersex where we have genitalia that is, uh, is ambiguous, uh, that's where we have underdeveloped genitalia and surgery is used to go in one direction or another and there are blood tests taken and decisions made. That is not what we're talking about when we're talking about the transgender craze that's going on in not just America but around the world now due to the internet. This social contagion which basically says that if you think you're the other sex, you really are the other sex and you're taking perfectly healthy sex organs and mutilating them in an attempt uh, a maybe well-intended, but an impossible attempt to become the other sex. It's impossible to do so. Uh, so it is true that we get surgery and we take medicine because of conditions caused by the fall. Nothing works precisely as it was originally designed to work because of the fall. And we do get surgery and take medicines for, say, uh, issues like cleft palates or bad eyesight, maybe you get LASIK surgery or something, or heart defects or whatever. You might even be born with these things. But here's the key difference. When we're trying to get medical help or surgery for those issues, vice a gender dysphoria situation. When we try and correct a cleft palate or bad eyesight or heart defects, we are trying to restore the natural function of the body, not create an artificial one contrary to the design of the body. That's the critical difference. How do you restore natural function for someone experiencing gender dysphoria? The body is working fine. It's the mind that needs treatment. You're treating the wrong thing. When you try and change the body, the body's just fine. It's working fine. The sex organs are working properly. It's the mind that needs treatment. And I'm not trying to minimize this or make fun of it at all. I'm just trying to uh, 
point out that in parallel situations, you would never try and change the body. You would try and change the mind. Here are the parallel situations. If your daughter thought she was a mermaid, would you take her off the coast and dump her in the ocean? No, nor would you try and get her mermaid surgery if that were possible. You would say, honey, your, your, your mind is playing tricks on you. You're not a mermaid. We need to get you some counseling. We need to get you some psychiatric help. We need to get you mental health care. If your daughter thought she was anorexic, or sorry, if your daughter thought she was fat, but she was really anorexic, would you fulfill her request to get liposuction? No, you would never do that. You would say, honey, your mind is playing tricks on you. We need to get you nutrition, not liposuction. If, and there are people doing this now, there are some people that think they are disabled. In their mind, they think they're disabled, but their body isn't. And so they think they have to have their limbs cut off. This is called ableism. And if someone, your daughter came to you or your son came to you and said, look, I, 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 I think I'm disabled. I, I need to have my arm cut off. Would you do that? No, you would say, honey or sir or son or whatever. You would say, your, <laughs> your mind is playing tricks on you. Let's treat the mind. Let's not mutilate the body. And if you go back to this question that uh, Elijah's friend gives us, he says that a man should seek medical help to change his body to line up with his true identity. His true identity, if he says, if he, if he really is a male, his true identity is male. You need to change the mind, not the body. It's impossible to change your biology, but it's not impossible to change your mind. In fact, the person had a different mind maybe a month or two ago when they didn't think they were trans. This is a question you can ask people who say they're trans. First of all, does your mind ever, does your mind ever play tricks on you? Does your mind tell you things that are wrong? Do your feelings ever play tricks on you? Do your feelings ever not tell you the truth? Do your feelings ever change? Of course they do. A month ago, you weren't trans. Now you are. Your feelings, has, your feelings have changed. Do you think they may change again? The data shows they will. 80% of young people that have gender dysphoria, they, they grow out of it by the time they're 18. By the way, everything of what I'm saying here is all in the book, Correct, Not Politically Correct, about same-sex marriage and transgenderism. Brand new. Just came out May 21st. There's a whole new section. It's the third edition of this book, and I just added a whole big new section on transgenderism. So if you get the book, Correct, Not Politically Correct, about transgenderism, or about same-sex marriage and transgenderism, it'll have most of what I'm saying in here. And this book, by the way, is not written as a Christian book. I'm not quoting Bible verses in there. This is giving you the common sense, natural law, medical effects of both transgenderism and same-sex marriage, pointing out that neither of these things are good for individuals or the nation. So it's more of the natural law medical effects case as to why transgenderism and same-sex marriage aren't good for individuals or the nation. Correct, not politically correct. We did a couple of podcasts on it a couple of weeks ago. You can check that out there. Uh, by the way, for people who say, let's say I'm a man, uh, or let's say, let's say, let's suppose I think I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. That's, that's what people think. Why not look at it the opposite way? 
Why not rather think that I'm a man in closing a woman's mind? Why not think that way? If that's the case, I'm really a man, but I have a woman's mind, all I need to do is change my mind. Which you can do. You can change your mind. You can't change your biology. Now, you might also consider that there's really no way for a man to personally know what it's like to be a woman. And there's really no way for a woman to personally know what it's like to be a man. So we're actually just guessing when we have gender dysphoria anyway. I mean, I'm not saying the condition isn't real, but I'm saying the object of our condition, we can't really be sure of. I don't know what it's like to be a woman. You don't know what it's like to be a man if you're a woman. You may think you do, but you don't know personally. So there's so much wrong with this. And we don't help people by allowing them to go down the wrong road, especially children, ladies and gentlemen. Back to Leviticus 19. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly. Frankly, don't use my tactic. Nobody likes the way I do things because <laughs> I'm from New Jersey. Anyway, rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not Seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's been great being with you. Uh, I'll get to that other question about Christianity being a white man's religion and another show that actually came from Africa, so we'll deal with that. Also, if you have questions, you want to send them into the program, just uh, send your questions to hello at crossexamined.org. That's hello at crossexamined.org. Great being with you. God bless. See you next time.